0: Happy New Year everybody and welcome to the first episode of 2020 episode 228 of the Lend Academy podcast this is your host Peter Renton founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lendit Fintech Conference Today's episode is sponsored by LendIt Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and LendIt Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. LendIt Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to LendIt.com USA to register. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Andrew Dix, He is the founder and CEO of Crowded Media Group, which is the publisher of Crowdfund Insider. Now, Andrew's been, been covering this space for many, many years and wanted to get him on the show to give a little bit of a retrospective for the first show of 2020 and also looking ahead at the coming year and the coming decade. We touch on many interesting topics here. We talk about equity crowdfunding and the things that the challenges that that it's faced. We talk about digital banking. We talk about big tech and embedded finance and crypto and much more. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew.
1: Good to talk to you, Peter.
0: Okay, so uh, let's get started by, you know, by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. We all know everyone reads Crowdfund Insider, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did before you started that?
1: Yeah, so it that's actually an excellent question because I have kind of what I think is a good background to be covering FinTech. Back in my my youth, which was is you know, some decades ago, <laughs> right. I actually worked in Washington D C and I was in the political and policy realm and I've always had an, an interest in, in policy in, in general. So I was in d c for a while, and that kind of exposed me to the the workings of legislation and politics. And that is, of course, a very important aspect of of Fintech because financial services is a highly regulated industry. so mm-hmm. so that helped. And then I worked in the media. Uh, I was in traditional media, working in a a small, closely held company that owned, Print, it owned broadcasts. At one point in time, it had television, and I ended up doing uh, running the digital operations. So at that time, media, specifically print, was going through its own digitization, and it was really, really difficult to kind of watch what was happening with traditional media. I'm I'm kind of a, a news and information junkie, and I could see how the wheels were falling off and how the internet was impacting traditional media and it was a bit of a struggle for me because I was I was engaged on the digital side and creating applications to manage news and working with the technology, you know, meanwhile it was kind of a circle of the wagons approach with the, the traditional side. So that kind of gave me the perspective of, of digital media. At the same time, I've always had an interest in finance. So my, my bachelor's is in economics and when I was had moved to, uh, the Cleveland area, which is where I'm located now, I took some classes in finance at uh, Weatherhead because I've just always had a, a profound interest in, in finance. And so I, I think in a different life, I probably would have been a banker. But in this <laughs> life, I ended up being a, a kind of a, a news and media guy that had a, a deep interest in financial services and policy. And that's kind of how you know, it all comes together in fintech, in covering fintech.
0: Right. So then was there one particular thing that, that was the impetus to actually start Crown Fudd Insider? Was there, was there some particular aha moment?
1: So it's another great question. There was uh, a period in the U.S. when uh, there was a discussion about the JOBS Act, the JOBS Act of 2012, and how this is going to transform capital formation. It would shift it from, you know, traditional capital formation to online capital formation or crowdfunding. And I had a friend who was an investment banker, and he said, hey, do you, do you know about this? I'm like, yeah, kind of. And uh, he said, uh, well, I'm kind of curious about this. This may be interesting. And I said, well, you know, I know of two events. I happen to know of two events that are to be taking place where they're going to discuss that piece of legislation. One was at a law firm, a big law firm, corporate law firm in, in downtown Cleveland. Another one had to do with a presentation from somebody from uh, Second Market, which at that time was was I a uh, platform I thought would get into this space. It did not. Uh, so I, I went to these two events, and I realized that the, the, the platform side was going to be very crowded and very competitive. But I thought to myself, gee, this would be really an interesting subject area to cover from a news side. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the, the aha moment, the the genesis. But I've always had a thesis that, that emerging sectors like this are opportunities for for news. Now I don't consider us a, a blog site or blog. I consider us as being news because we co- cover news in a more traditional fashion. And so that was kind of the the the, the moment where I said you know, this is something that, that I want to pursue it, because I had that whole digital background. It was, it was easy for me to, you know, get a site up and live quickly and start doing some coverage of the, of the sector.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And So what, when did you go live exactly?
1: I can't remember the exact date, but it was after the Jobs Act of 2012 was signed into law and, and, and things take time as we all know, and right. uh, when it comes to, to financial regulation. And it, it was within months of that taking place. And that took place in, I think, the, the summer of, of 2012. So it was either, either late 2012 or, or, or 2013, yeah. uh, where we started with the, the first domain, which is crowdfundinsider.com. Uh, and that really had to do with the fact that there was a lot of focus on facilitating capital formation and this act of legislation, which was uh, hugely bipartisan because that was the Obama administration and it got support from both the Republicans and the the Democrats. And it's, you know, it's one of the, the standout acts of legislation that saw people from both sides of the aisle support and uh, it was kind of an exciting period which obviously has taken a lot longer than most people expected.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah I want to get into that in a little bit but before I do so I want to just maybe touch on one question that I think many people have because a lot of people might, might not know your name but a lot of people know your pseudonym so um, why don't you tell us about what your pseudonym is and why you decided to use a pseudonym in the
1: first place so it's it's a good, another great question. so when when we started it, I uh, hired my first employee, and most of it had to do with you know content creation. Uh, that's really what we you know we needed somebody to do, and that person did that. And after running the the platform for a while, we we're like, well, we need to to augment this. We need you know more content. And in traditional media, it's very common to do a staff report. And so, uh, what I would do is, is at night when I came home, I would, you know, do some staff reports, which is pretty easy to do. But there was a, a following conversation about how Google uh, likes to see bylines; they, they like to see an individual's name. And so, I was still at my day job at the time, and I thought, well, okay, I'll just, you know, do a, a pen name for this. And I would just continue to, to do, you know, a couple articles in the evening and just augment a little bit, uh, because this other person was doing a good amount of the content. So that's kind of how it came to be. And, and, and once you, you go down that path, you know, it's kind of, you know, difficult to, you know, put that genie back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you do that? And I think that, that over time, uh, hopefully I, you know, my prose has, has, uh, improved. But I, I I do believe that I'm at a point where I'm probably the most prolific fintech writer in the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And so your synonym, just tell the listeners what your synonym is. Your pseudonym. So
1: my, my my pen name is uh, JD Alois and there is a reason for for that name. But I've never shared it with anybody. Nobody knows why. But there is it, it, it's a derivative of something, and it and it actually has to do with you know part of my my history, my past experience and. Uh, Anybody can figure it out. I'll give them, you know, a thousand dollars of free advertising.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay, there's a challenge (laughs) for everybody. Um, Okay, so then you you started off you're covering the crowdfunding space, and then you, you know, you've really the content has evolved over the years, and you know, you you now cover a much broader, broader sort of swath of content. So, tell us. Has this been a, a conscious decision or has this just sort of evolved naturally? What's What's been the, the evolution
1: there? So it was, it was definitely a conscious decision. When we first started covering the ecosystem, we focused a lot of attention on the UK. The UK was first out of the gate in creating a regulatory environment that was robust and functional for online capital formation. And that was both debt in equity, as you know well, peer-to-peer lending really got its start in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. They had the first really uh, effective equity crowdfunding platform or platforms or investment crowdfunding platforms in the UK, and so they had a head start on, on the US. And I looked at the UK, said, "Well, this is an opportunity to learn and see how they're evolving because they're they're ahead in the game." Over time. In the U.S., you had kind of the, the growth of the online lending sector and marketplace lending. You had the uh, uh, Lending Club, you had Prosper, you had Funding Circle, and, and these platforms became more prominent. And so we started to get outreach from those platforms and we started to pay more attention to those platforms. And there was a certain point in time I was like, well, you know, that's it's two sides of the coin. While equity can be kind of sexy, it's kind of small. While debt is not necessarily as sexy, it's huge. It's it's enormous, and that's the way it's been in public markets since I don't know how long. And I said, okay, this is just you know it's just part of that that financial stack. And really, it's in my opinion, online capital formation was the catalyst for all of fintech because i think you should have a lot of people that were you know young you know finance executives or they're they're going to, to wharton or someplace and they're they're looking at traditional finance and they're looking at the ways things have the things have been facilitated in the past And so you're saying wait a minute with technology i can do things differently i can do things better and so first you had online capital formation debt and equity and then everybody said well i can do this i can do that and then you just have this kind of this creative boom of, of platforms, ideas, services, you know, from banking to lending to, to trading to crypto. And uh, it, it's really been uh, amazing the amount of creativity that, I have seen and you have seen mm-hmm. uh, in the fintech sector for the the full stack of all sorts of financial services. Right. So that's kind of the the, the genesis of the site.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's go back to equity crowdfunding. And it, as you say, it, it was I remember I actually wrote about it as well when in uh, in 2012 when uh, Obama signed the Jobs Act and there was a lot of optimism. And, you know, it really I mean, I think if we had said, well, let's look ahead in seven plus years and no one would expect we were, we're still kind of it's still a very small small industry and why do you think like it hasn't taken off in this country you know obviously it's taken off in the UK i mean israel with, with our crowd they there's they are very active why has it not taken off in this country
1: yeah um, it it's that's a a multifaceted explanation there because as we know, regulations in the financial services industry is Byzantine at best in the United States. Mm-hmm. Not only do you have to deal with 50 individual states and the nuances of dealing with state regulators, there are also around a dozen federal regulators that touch financial services. That's hard. If you are a startup, an early stage company that wants to challenge entrenched finance, there's a, a significant hurdle that is costly to to compete and that's just that's just you know part of the part of the, the uh, environment here in the united states the rules that were created under the jobs act of 2012 were not the best now i give a lot of credit to the people that fought to get those rules done in effect you had three forms of, of of uh, investment crowdfunding, you had Reg D 506C for accredited investors. You had Reg A, where you could raise up to $50 million from both accredited and non accredited investors. And you had Reg CF, which initially you could raise up to a million dollars via a funding portal or broker deal from both non accredited and, and accredited investors. But in the, the infinite wisdom of our policy mandarins, who always seem to err on the side of investor protection. The rules have been so stringent that they actually have flipped to the opposite side. When you look at Reg CF, the, that regulation has, has been good, but it's been hobbled by the, the strict regime. And in fact, I think at times it, it's kind of like uh, uh, it, it creates an environment of negative selection where some issuers on some platforms, they do it because they can't do, raise money anywhere else. And that's not what you want. Uh, you want, in my opinion, to have your smallest investors have access to the very best deals. That's what you want to create. But that's not what the regulations actually did. So it's been hobbled. You can only raise, uh, a million seven right now, 1.07 million right now. Uh, that's too low. There's several aspects of the rule that rules that really need to be fixed. Reg A plus has been a bit of a disappointment because of deal quality. It's been described as a mini IPO type structure. The cost to do a a Reg A plus is hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on who you talk to. I think some of the issuers have not been that great. I I think the the clear winner in the full stack of of crowdfunding exemptions is Reg D file to succeed. And that's basically a Reg D that you can generally solicit or advertise. I am optimistic that some of these things can be fixed and, and can be changed. I, I'm uh, an advisor to the Association of Online Investment Platforms, and that's one of the things that that group is pursuing is a regulatory fix for mainly Reg CF. And there's some people who would like to see it raised to $20 million. Some people want to see it at $10 million. I think the, the, the lowest amount that people are advocating for is $5 million. Uh, AOIP, the association... They have asked for a 10 million cap. And that would also kind of bring it into line with what you're seeing in uh, the UK, uh, because under existing law in the UK, there is a prospectus requirement once you raise 8 million euros or more. And a pers- pers- or creating a prospectus is a significant undertaking and what it does is it creates a, a bit of a, a, a speed pump. But under that amount, you can raise as much as you want without a prospectus. You can still crowdfund, you know, as much as you want, but you have that speed bump. Mm-hmm. And, and that has seemed to to have worked well in the UK. You regularly see issuers raise, you know, m- you know multi-million pound offerings. You regularly see uh, very high-quality issuers raise money on these platforms where they're frequently doing side-by-sides with big vcs a lot of the digital challenger banks which have, have achieved unicorn status i think just about all of them have you know pursued online capital formation like a monzo or revolute and they view it as a way to to not only raise a little bit of money but also to uh, garner some earned promotion and to enlist the whole you know legion of people that will advocate and utilize their services which is smart when you right. think about it
0: right yeah i know that's the, the it's it's really been a i think one of the one of the unique things about the uk fintech scene is that so many people now own slices of these of these banks and uh, the, and the challenger banks and they uh you know they've seen the paper valuation of their of their investment uh, increase dramatically which obviously Helps uh, helps for future fundraising. Anyway, I, I want to sort of move along here and uh, just talk about. You know, maybe we can start with like where this is going to be. We're recording this a week before Christmas, but it's going to be published the first uh, Friday in January, and so it's the, it's the first one uh, you know of the new decade. And firstly, maybe you could take a step back and look back at the 2010s. A lot has happened. In fintech in this last decade, and fintech wasn't really used as a term uh, ten years ago. And so, from your perspective, you know you've you've, you've been in, in writing and covering this space for for most of this decade. As you look back at the 2010s, where do you think the the promise of fintech was realized, and where did it fall short?
1: Well, I, I think that the, the promise of fintech is is ongoing, and I think mm-hmm. that uh, really we're talking about the digitization of finance is really applying the internet to financial services. I think this is one area where the Chinese got it right, where they called it internet finance. And similar what what happened to the newspaper industry, where the internet just totally disrupted them, that is, is happening and will continue to happen to the financial services industry at an accelerated pace. So I think that's all good. Uh, but as we all know, uh, innovation and change it's never a straight line. Everybody wants to see, you know, the hockey stick where, you know, you get in low and it ends up being just hugely successful. That's not reality. And, and anybody who's been an entrepreneur understands that it's a roller coaster with up, many ups and many downs. And and many of these companies will end up failing, which is fine. That's part of the process. So I look at from the early part of the decade and I look at some of these single service platforms that only did this or only did that and they tried to excel in these areas and at the time i think you know everybody including myself i thought this is is great it's really going to change the world but i think that that you know maybe they overshot that hype a little bit and some of these these platforms uh they realized that doing this one thing really well not necessarily the best path. So I, I think what you're, you're you're seeing today and you're going to continue to see is you're going to continue to see these platforms that have some traction within certain sectors iterate. And they're going to continue to iterate and provide services and, and look at their, their consumers or customers and say, well, I'm already doing this. I can do this as well and I can drive incremental income and scale more effectively in fashion. So if you look at the equity side, you're going to see platforms that um, do other things besides in the U.S. Reg G, Reg CF, Reg A+, but they're also going to you know, provide management services. They're also going to provide advisory services. You're, they're also going to provide a whole host of investment banking-type services. It'll just be digital, and that kind of makes sense. And I think for, for platforms, as, they, as they've you know, earned their stripes – and they toughed it out and the ones are survived, survive, it's gonna make sense to do that. I think the same thing is going to happen on the lending side. And I think that if you look at a lending club, publicly traded company, there's a lot of debate as to whether they went public too soon. I think their idea about shifting into becoming a marketplace bank and provide additional banking services totally makes sense. They have the, the touch point with the consumer, they have the data, they have a, a lot of services they can already offer. To provide a few more services, it's not that much of a leap because it's all digital. Whether they'll be successful or not, you know, we're going to find out. But I think that is kind of the, 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 the pinnacle or the transition that we're at right now where the people, the platforms that have, have captured a certain amount of transactions, they have to continue to iterate to see how they remain competitive and to, to be able to compete. Or partner with traditional finance on mm-hmm. um, taking that a step further? I think this thesis about big tech in FinTech is, is huge. So I think as we go into the, the 20s, I think that that is going to continue to gain more traction. It's going to be bigger than what most traditional financial services firms think will be today.
0: Okay, okay. So you, that, that, that's, that's interesting, but you, you, you've already sort of started to answer my next question, which is as we look ahead to this decade, okay, you, you touched on big tech. What are, what are some of the other, you know, key trends you see as, uh, you know, as really being a huge part of, of fintech going forward?
1: So I think that, I, so I believe that uh, technology is at its best when it's ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere, but it, it's not, it doesn't get in your way. It, it's something that's there when you need it, but otherwise it, it doesn't bother you. And I think that that's what you see happening for financial services. When I need to pay something, I, I you know, point my phone at it. When I need to access credit, the credit is there, it's available for me now. It, it doesn't matter you know what platform I'm on. I have access to it. So I no longer need to drive to my, you know, corner bank branch to, to do whatever I need to do with financial services. I'll be able to access it anywhere, anytime, uh, as long as I'm, I'm digitally connected. And I think that that is a, a theme and a transition that is a uh, multi-decade. It's, it's going to be, you know, years and years in the making, but it's inevitable.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep no I I I completely you and sort of that's where you know we're starting to talk about embedded finance which I think is is a right. super super interesting uh trend which uh, we'll be we'll be covering in depth at uh, Lendit this year and uh I feel like you know that that's just that's that's one of many but so tell me about this then what do you think of You know, the digital banking space in this country specifically, you know, we've got, you know, some very fast growing uh, operations here and we've got some of the Europeans arriving. None of them have uh, worked out how to make money yet, or very few, I shouldn't say none, few of them have. What do you think? How does that, how does this digital banking story play out this coming decade, do you think?
1: So I I think that traditional finance has always moaned and groaned about the regulatory environment to to operate you know, within the 50 states and you know across the country and i i think today they they're looking at it as maybe something that's that's a little bit better than bad because it's created a bit of a moat for mm-hmm. looming competition and uh one thing about traditional finance is is, is they're very effective with uh, lobbying. They have a great voice on Capitol Hill. And you can see that manifest itself from time to time in, in some of the things that happen inside the bellway. I think that for traditional finance, they're obviously uh, attempting to innovate and adapt and change by building their own platforms, acquiring platforms and partnering with platforms, which is absolutely what they need to do. For the emerging challengers, the Fintechs, again, because of the regulations, it's been kind of a, a, a tough road to follow in the US because we have you know how many how many digital only banks have received a a federal banking charter where well, you have real money, which has a provisionary charter I believe, and they're still waiting on FDIC approval and that process has taken, God knows how many years. <laughs> and it's, it's crazy it's taken so long. Now, you have Marcus, which bought a bank, and that was probably a very smart move on their part. And you have a lot of other digital banks that have applied for or are looking to apply for or are looking to finesse the regulations to offer bank-like services. I don't think our regulatory environment was meant to make it so difficult. Yes, do these entities need to be regulated? Absolutely. Yes, do they need to be held to as high of standard as traditional finance? Absolutely. But should there be a path for these, these digital challenger banks to become you know, regulated at a national level? That's obvious. When you look at what happened in the UK and the number of uh, challenger banks that have emerged and that are growing rapidly in leaps and bounds, that's what should be happening in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it's been a, a bit, of, bit of a slow go here, and that's why you have banks like Revolut and Monzo uh, coming into the United States instead of up shop here because they kind of cut their teeth in a different market and they've learned a lot of things. And now they're saying, well, I can just apply that here. And I'll do what everybody else is doing. I'll use regulatory arbitrage and partner with an existing charger bank to offer my services. And then maybe at some point in the future, I'll get a charger mate, maybe not. That's kind of a convoluted process to do that. These platforms should have a clear, bright line path to be regulated at the federal level. And so I, I disagree with the regulatory approach. I think that the, the OCC has made an attempt to, to pursue that path that you know as well as I the legal challenge and battle from you know traditional finance and entrenched uh stakeholders has been enormous mm-hmm. and i just wish that wasn't the case it's also for 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 legislators this you know is not necessarily a priority for them it's not something that's going to get them a lot of votes it's not something that they necessarily understand you know really well and so there's not a, a whole lot of interest in, in fixing some of these issues, which is unfortunate because, again, the, the loser is always the, the consumer, right? Because right. once you have more competition within the financial services industry, the people that benefit are the consumers because costs go down and the, the quality of services move up. And if you are a congressman or senator, that's what you should want. You should be pursuing that. But unfortunately, that's not the case outside a few exceptions. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's dead right. I feel like there isn't there isn't enough push in Washington to to change the status quo, and uh, I think it's going to take a long time for that for that to happen, if if ever. And uh, I think it's certainly going to hold hold innovation back. And but anyway, we're we're almost out of time, and there's a couple of things I really wanted to get to. You know, we spent this entire interview so far, and we haven't talked about crypto. And you have uh, you've written about this a great deal, and you know, and, the, and, and blockchain in general. But maybe just give us a, just a minute or minute or so thoughts on uh, on the crypto space and what what are the themes that you're that you're watching right now there.
1: Yeah. So it, we really, when Bitcoin was kind of emerging, we really didn't cover that. Uh, but then all of a sudden, Ethereum came along. and Ethereum enabled the, you know, the, the smart contracts and, and ICOs. And, and really we started covering it because people started sending us information about things we were doing. And I'm like, what is this? I don't understand this. You know, I need to spend some time researching this. And you could see that it, it was a form of online capital formation that was kind of like, you know, it was a, a like a cocaine fueled crowdfunding offering uh that was highly illegal and so you had these this whole ecosystem developed where people would raise money and it was all speculative it was uh breaking obviously breaking existing securities law and a lot of people predicted its inevitable implosion which is what happened but what i think it did do is it it showed that how technology can help remove some of the friction in financial services Mm -hmm if you do it in a regulated and a compliant fashion and manner. So I think that ICOs will be, you know, kind of a footnote in history. It was a crazy, weird time and place with a lot of very interesting and colorful people, many of them doing things that they probably shouldn't have been doing. But I also think that now you're in this point where you have this transition to digital assets, which in the United States means digital securities. And I think the digitization of securities is coming. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just going to happen. I, you know, I remember back in the day when I could call my broker and say, Hey, send my certificate to me. I want to hold onto my certificate. And they would put it in the mail. Well, you, you can't do that anymore. There's a lot of back office stuff that is still kind of analogish that can be pulled out of the system to drive efficiencies, uh, you look at Cagney's new startup, and um, I was reading the other day where he's he's able to to pull I think 100 basis points out of the securitization process. If you're in you know traditional financial services, you're gonna say, wow, that's huge because at scale that makes means a lot of money. So I think you're gonna see that that similar streamlining taking place in back office operations, which is really not that sexy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, but, I, but I think that's where we are now. People are just trying to figure it out. Digital securities are going to happen. How that manifests itself, I don't know. I just think it's going to happen. Uh, the other thing that I think may be of interest is is a sector that I call esoterics. And that's because all of a sudden, with technology, you can securitize things that really were not you're not able to do in the past. It just was not cost effective to do in the past. And I think you've seen a little bit of this where people are kind of dabbling with, you know, real estate transactions. You've seen some successful real estate transactions that are going to be managed on distributed ledger technology. And I think people are going to start to experiment with other assets and other asset classes. Where that's going to go, I have no idea. Regarding the concept of a, of a utility token as opposed to a security You know, the jury's out in In the United States or some jurisdictions in in Europe that have facilitated that. And and in other countries, it's happening. I don't know if it's going to continue to happen or whether it's going to go. Uh, But in the United States, pretty much, if you're doing a digital asset, it's a a security with a couple exceptions.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. so so last question, as we, uh, you know, we're starting the year. Yeah, you know, we've talked about a lot of different things in this interview. Um, what is the most interesting topic that you're following most closely right now?
1: So beyond the regulatory stuff, which I I think I have a genetic flaw because I actually enjoy reading about <laughs> regulations and in policy. If there's you, you can't take me out in the public, my wife you knows she gets scared when we go out to things because I I start talking to people and they have no idea what I'm talking about. But I think beyond that, and you know, I go back to the the big tech in fintech and i just see the 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 pace that 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 has already happened in china where you have you know big tech like tencent and you know alibaba alipay and and, and what you're seeing happen there i think they're ahead of us in many respects i think you're going to continue to see that happen within the us and elsewhere do i want apple to be my bank Absolutely. I trust them with all sorts of uh, information that I would trust with nobody else. And I'm already uh, using them to pay for things. Is it, a, is it a leap to have them to provide more financial services to me? Not at all. Is it dicey for them to go down that path due to the convoluted regulatory environment, which is, is really, you know, kind of Jurassic? Yes. But I think over time, they were going to continue to go down that that path alongside other big tech firms like you know Google, Amazon, Facebook. I'm not a huge fan of Facebook, but I think you're going to continue to see that domestically in the United States. And I think you're going to see it globally uh, around the world. We've already seen you know excellent examples of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. It'll be, it'll be very interesting to see. But anyway, on that note, we'll have to leave it there. Andrew, I very much appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: Excellent. It was good talking to you.
0: Okay. See ya. All right. Take care and you know, the continued encroachment of big tech into finance the uh, the movement towards embedded finance the the crazy fast growth of the digital banks these are all important trends i think that we will continue to be paying attention to, to continue to evolve our thinking on as this decade progresses. And it's it's going to be a very exciting time. One thing I'm certain, I obviously don't know, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how it's going to play out. But one thing I am certain of is that finance in 2030 is going to look very different from finance in 2020. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by LendIt Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and LendIt Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. LendIt Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to LendIt.com USA
1: to register.